Hello and welcome to another bonus instalment of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode is another bonus made possible by the generosity of my patrons over at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Before we get started, there is a little bit of business to get out of the way. First thing is to thank a new patron, Oliver Robertson. Thank you so much for your support. It keeps the lights on and the content flowing for everyone. All patrons receive a bundle of gaming material, including my brand new game book, Prime Time Dungeons. That's right, I've finally finished my new game book. It has been playtested and edited by my kind husband and is available to all my patrons right now. Just go to Patreon and there's a post on my page with a copy of the PDF for you to download. It's been a real labour of love, this one, and I'm quite happy with how it came out. It's one that changed considerably from the original outline I produced, but I think everything has come together very nicely in the end. If you fancy playing a game book that's Crystal Maze meets Running Man meets Dungeons and Dragons, then all you have to do is punt me as little as a quid a month to get access to it, and indeed all the other bits of gaming ephemera what I've done wrote. Never want to sit upon my laurels, I've already got a few projects lined up for this year. There will be another game book which is going to be a sufficiently big project that I've already started sketching out the shape of it. I've also got a few little gaming projects as well, including a simple war game designed to be played with only a single model on each side, and a post-apocalyptic role-playing game with a unique twist. I'll share more details in February, because I'm planning to take the rest of the month off, except for podcasts. Right, let's get back to the episode. The Caves of Time is the first book in the long-running and highly influential Choose Your Own Adventure series. I've been a bit wary of engaging with this series as the owners are notoriously protective of their IP and also seem to think they own the idea of game books with multiple endings in general. Nevertheless, they are a major part of the world of interactive fiction and they did more than almost anything else to popularise the format in the Americas. Whereas the Fighting Fantasy series has its roots in tabletop role-playing, the Choose Your Own Adventure series has a more folksy origin story, with the original author, Edward Packard, saying it all came out of bedtime stories he told his children in the late 60s, significantly before the creation of Fighting Fantasy, and also before Dungeons & Dragons was released. He wrote his first book in 1970, but didn't find a publisher, until 1975. He wrote three game books before Bantam Publishing picked up the series and Choose Your Own Adventure as a Phenomenon was born in 1979. Obviously, it went on to enormous success. I was quite sniffy about these books as a child. My first contact with game books was with Fighting Fantasy and therefore the Choose Your Own Adventure series seemed like a step backwards. I was probably a bit old for the series by the time I encountered it, which didn't help, but the design seemed to me overly simplistic and I did not like the lack of a combat system. Very murder-focused as a child I was. With the benefits of hindsight and a more mature perspective, I think of Choose Your Own Adventures as something different 
that evolved in parallel with my beloved fighting fantasy books. It's a fascinating example of the same underlying principles being applied almost simultaneously, but coming at it from completely independent origins, and I just think that's cool. The Cave of Time was written by Edward Packard and illustrated by Paul Granger and released in 1979 by Bantam Books. The cover illustration shows just how strongly styles can date a thing. I can't put my finger on why, but it just screams 1970s children's illustration. Perhaps it's the use of watercolours for the inking or the way the stylization works, but it feels extremely of the time. We've got a boy on a horse. We've got a goofy-looking sea monster, a cartoonishly bearded fellow with a black beard and a sword, and for some reason, a really nice rendition of an Asian warrior with a spear, which has been done in a more artistic style, which I guess was maybe the illustrator showing off some of his talent. The front cover boasts that there are 40 different endings, which is the main draw here, and it already marks it out as a bit different even from the Endless Quest books we covered. Uh, they definitely did not have that many endings. I think with 40 endings in 115 pages, the adventures will have to be very short indeed, but we will find out, I guess. Let us dive into The Cave of Time. So page one provides us with uh, the traditional introduction to the concept. Warning, it proclaims, with no less than four exclamation marks. Do not read this book straight through from beginning to end! Exclamation mark. These pages contain many different adventures you can go on in the cave of time. From time to time as you read along, you will be asked to make a choice. Your choice may lead to success or disaster! Exclamation mark. The adventures you take are a result of your choice. You are responsible because you choose! Exclamation mark. After you make your choice, Follow the instructions to see what happens to you next. Remember, you cannot go back! Exclamation mark. Think carefully before you make a move! Exclamation mark. One mistake can be your last, or it may lead you to fame and fortune! Exclamation mark. Quite a strident tone from the off. Um, interesting to see if that gets maintained. You've hiked through Snake Canyon once before while visiting your Uncle Howard at Red Creek Ranch, but you never noticed any cave entrance. It looks as though a recent rock slide has uncovered it. There is a picture of the cave. It is... fine. There's some really random lines been just sort of drawn across it, as though the illustrator had a plan to use horizontal lines as the main form of shading, then lost interest at a relatively early stage. Um, other than that, though, it's fine. Though the late afternoon sun is striking the opening of the cave, the interior remains in total darkness. You step inside a few feet, trying to get an idea of how big it is. As your eyes become used to the dark, you see what looks like a tunnel ahead, dimly lit by some kind of phosphorescent material on its walls. Ah. Classic. I love a good phosphorescent wall. In fact, there's a good number of phosphorescent walls in the game book I've just finished. It is a really easy way of lighting 
an area if you don't want the character to have to take a torch or something similar with them. It's one of those things that makes no sense really, but at the same time we all accept it because the alternative is just much more inconvenient. Yes, lots of caves are brightly lit for some reason. The tunnel walls are smooth, as if they were shaped by running water. After 20 feet or so, the tunnel curves. You wonder where it leads. You venture in a bit further, but you feel nervous being alone in such a strange place. You turn and hurry out. A thunderstorm may be coming, judging by how dark it looks outside. Suddenly you realise the sun has long since set and the landscape is lit only by the pale light of the full moon. You must have fallen asleep and woken up hours later. But then you remember something even more strange. Just last evening, the moon was only a slim crescent in the sky. You wonder how long you've been in the cave. You're not hungry. You don't feel like you've been sleeping. You wonder whether to try and walk back home by moonlight or whether to wait for dawn rather than risk losing your footing on the steep and rocky trail. So we now have a choice. We can either start back home or wait. Well, I am nothing if not a man of action. Sitting around seems like a terrible plan, so I am going to start back home. As you start walking back towards the ranch, you notice the trail seems very different to how you remember it. Though, of course, moonlight can play tricks on your eyes but you suddenly realise that you are not walking on the trail at all, but on what seems to be a dried-up riverbed. You hurry back to the cave entrance. You look around you and realise that the whole landscape has changed. While you are in the cave, torrents of water have washed out the trail, yet there is not so much as a puddle left. You shiver. It is cold, much colder than it should be at this time of year. You take a jacket out of your backpack and put it on, but you are still freezing. At least the world about you seems brighter. It's getting light in the east. The sun will be up soon. You look at your watch. It has run down, though you only wound it a few hours ago. Nothing seems to make sense anymore. You know you should get back to the ranch as quickly as possible, yet somehow you feel that the only way to change things back to the way they were is to re-enter the cave. I'm enjoying how this is written. I think it's not going too hard on the confusion and disorientation, which would have been a bad plan, I think, with the title of the book being Cave of Time. It's one of those things where you want to give the reader a sense of discombobulation, but you don't want to make them feel helpless. You want them to be able to feel as though the character they're playing doesn't know what's going on, but you don't want to overplay it because you know that the reader kind of does know what's going on. So um, we do have a decision to make, though. We can either continue towards the ranch or head back to the cave. Well, yeah, I want to find out what's on the site of the ranch in this different time period. As it gets lighter, you realise that you can't be on the right track. The canyon seems shallower than it was. The riverbed is strewn with boulders that were never there before. Cold wind chills you to the bone, yet it's the middle of summer. As you climb to higher ground to get a better view, you notice patches of snow. From the top of a ridge you survey a barren plain, frozen lakes and in the distance a massive range of snow-covered mountains. You begin to realise that you are not merely lost, you are lost in time. 
and you have somehow been transported to an ice age that occurred many thousands of years ago. Maybe that's overplaying it a bit. I think you could have held off the reveal of the Ice Age for a section or two. I think it's nice as the reader to feel as though you're maybe a little bit ahead of the text, that you've worked out what's going on, but it, it's a small thing. You walk towards one of the cliffs that border the canyon, seeking shelter from the wind, and notice an entrance to another cave. You are tempted to go inside, but you feel that you should keep moving in hopes of somehow reaching a familiar country. Reaching a familiar country to do what? Uh, seek help from the consulate? I mean, you might find familiar country, but at the same time, that familiar country isn't going to have anything on it that you would recognise as being helpful. Still, We've got another choice. We can enter the cave or we can continue on. Oh, and there is another picture. This one um, crossing two pages to give a lovely panoramic effect. But I feel like the mountains are really nice, even though they're very simply sketched. They often make an effort to go a little bit androgynous with the kids in this. But this one does, to me, look more like a boy than a girl. Uh, it could just be a tomboy, of course. But it does seem as though maybe there's a default assumption that it's a boy reading this rather than a girl. The child is sort of okay. The posing isn't the best. It's supposed to look as though the child is, is walking over the, the rubble-strewn ground, but it looks more like they've frozen during a game of statues. Anyway, uh, do we want to go into the cave or continue on? I'm going to continue on. It's a cave that got me into this mess. I'm going to try and avoid caves from here on in. You continue on following a trail leading up to a steep incline. You hear loud trumpeting sounds from a nearby ravine. The sounds of large animals. You climb over some rocks and find yourself looking down on one of the largest land mammals that has ever lived. The woolly mammoth. Huge as this creature is, its size is exaggerated even more by its thick layer of wool. Slightly odd turn of phrase there, unless the woolly coat is very, very thick. I don't think it would actually exaggerate it that much. There is a picture of the woolly mammoth being spied on by the child, and the woolly mammoth, I would say, looks like a gorilla with tusks and a trunk. I don't know what the reference material was for that, or indeed if there was any reference material, but. The foreleg of the woolly mammoth seems to be jointed in a way that I genuinely don't think woolly mammoths were jointed. Um, so that's interesting. We've got a, a woolly tusked ape. Uh, do we want to jump down onto the woolly mammoth or continue on foot? Um, I'm an animal lover. I don't see any scope in jumping on the back of a beast that hasn't bothered me any. Uh, even if riding a woolly mammoth does kind of sound cool, so I will continue on foot. Riding on a mammoth might be fun if you were not cold and hungry and lost. But where would it take you? You continue walking, your spirits sinking. Just as you feel ready to sit down and cry, you see an opening in the ground. You crawl in on your hands and knees. It might provide some warmth, and it might lead to the cave of time. You find yourself in a tunnel. There are other tunnels branching off. You feel sure now that you are in the cave of time. You are eager to take the next tunnel to the surface, but you want to travel a long way forward in time. Maybe you should take a tunnel further on. 
yeah, I, I buy that. I think another thing that I always struggled with a little bit in choose your own adventure books was being used to being provided with more choices about what happens. What I mean is I feel as though in a fighting fantasy book, you would have a choice whether or not you want to crawl into the tunnel or not. That seems like a natural breaking point for a choice. Whereas choose your own adventure books tend to be more comfortable with making decisions on your behalf. It's not a problem once you get used to it, but it is a key difference in approach. I like the idea of going a long way forward in time, so I'm going to try and take a tunnel further on. You continue a long distance until you come to the next tunnel. From there, it is only a short distance until you reach the surface. An amazing sight meets your eye. As far as you can see, the land looks like a beautiful park with soft, feathery grass and towering trees. Here and there are clusters of multicoloured dome-shaped buildings connected by ramps, terraces and walkways. Some people, dressed in simple khaki pants and shirts and tan sneakers, walk up to you. They do not understand your language nor you theirs. They look much like the people of your time, except that they are unusually trim, muscular and healthy-looking, and they are a good deal smaller than your own people. Ah, retro visions of the future are always great. What is the most futuristic form of dress that Edward Packard can imagine? Khaki pants, khaki shirts, tan sneakers. They take you inside a dome-shaped building and show you electronic equipment that looks like a computer. You notice a typewriter, so you sit at it and type a message. The computer prints out a reply. It apparently has access to memory banks containing your language. You soon discover that you are living in the year 3742. Wow. That is a long way in the future. Sufficiently far that I feel as though Disco might even have come back. Through computer instruction, you are able to learn the language, which you find is similar to English. So soon you are able to communicate with your hosts. Is it Dutch? Dutch is very similar to English. Uh, sufficiently similar that if you look at a sentence written in Dutch, it kind of feels as though you should be able to understand it, even if you can't. They are not at all surprised to hear that you have arrived through the cave of time. You are not the first, the head of the household tells you. But we have visitors from other times only once in a great while. When someone comes, we are always glad to learn about life in another era, because here we have achieved a sort of paradise. We do not work, and the world is at peace. It is a perfect society. That is why primitive epochs such as yours interest us so much. Kind of trying to do the future armour. Welcome to the world of tomorrow, voice there. I hope he doesn't talk more because it is quite wearing to do and I imagine somewhat wearing to listen to. Uh, so we've got a choice again. Do we want to stay in the perfect society, which is in quotation marks, or try to return to the cave of time? There's something very American about putting the perfect society in quotation marks as though the author's deeply suspicious of the idea of peace and not going to work. 
but that's what happens when your entire nation was founded by Protestants. Uh, do I want to stay in the perfect society? Yeah, go on then. Why not? Why not? Your hosts give you a fine bedroom with large windows overlooking the park on one side. On another wall is a beautiful painting of the California seacoast. When you push a button, the painting folds up to the ceiling, revealing a large screen. Your room contains a computer terminal that enables you to select any movie or other program you desire from over 10,000 possibilities. I imagine a future where you only have to choose between 10,000 bits of entertainment. I mean, that seems like the impossible dream at this point. Imagine thinking that 10,000 movies and TV shows represented the absolute apogee of choice. There are even films where you are the main character and you can make choices as to what will happen next in the story. Then if you don't like the way the plot is working out, you can go back to an earlier point and make different choices from then on. On your terminal, you can also play games and flash pages of books or magazines on the screen. You can live quite well without even getting out of bed. This feels like a pointed commentary on me and my lifestyle in lots of ways. <laughs> like You can't fault him for basically predicting people spending all their time staring at screens which will show you a vast array of content and also play games and so forth. He's got that bang on. Eventually you go exploring. You meet other people but you find none of them very interesting so you spend most of your time watching the greatest movies of all time. Gradually you settle into your new life. One thing disturbs you. No one has made any new movies in the last 300 years. The end. So a little hint there that maybe this perfect society isn't so perfect at all and could really use, I don't know, a couple of wars to sort of give the people the impetus to do things, which is a nonsense. That's an absolute nonsense. The evidence is that if you let people work less, they do all sorts of interesting things to fill the time and lots of people engage in creative works just for the sheer pleasure of doing them. And I don't see why movies should be any different. Um, there's some great little micro-budget indie filmmakers out there who are clearly not hoping to make any kind of living from their work, but are just doing it for the sheer joy of it. So I don't really buy it as the ultimate dystopia but then I am an anarcho-communist, so I probably wouldn't. But I enjoy it as a, uh, a premise, and it is kind of cool to do the sort of brave new world thing where it looks like paradise on the surface, but you kind of give a hint that maybe there's, there's stuff underneath that doesn't go so well. Um, so that was an enjoyable little run. I don't think I'm done with this book. Let's pretend that instead of staying in the perfect society we actually returned to the cave of time. There is something deadening about the perfect future society that makes you want to return to your own time as quickly as possible. With a brief word of farewell you hurry back to the tunnel, climb down and find a fork to the right that you hope will take you towards the right time. Soon you are climbing up towards the surface, excited about the discovery you are about to make. When you reach the surface, it is completely dark. 
A chill wind is blowing. You sit resolutely, waiting for dawn so that you can see what kind of world you are in. Meanwhile, there is no way of telling what time it is, either by your watch or by the stars. You hear loud clicking sounds all around you, mostly in the distance, but some quite close. As the orange-pink glow of the oncoming dawn lightens the eastern sky, you see nearby the shape of a creature that is the size of a sheep, but has a very different appearance. The end. So, the creature is illustrated, and it looks like a grasshopper, but with a sort of traditional monstery fanged mouth, maybe also a sting in the tail. Uh, kind of like a cross between a grasshopper, a wasp, an ant, and uh, a crocodile. It's not a particularly good illustration, quite honestly, but it is quite fun. I guess the implication is that it's going to eat us along with all the other ones. Um, but the author felt that this was a book aimed at the younger end of the reading spectrum and didn't want to give them nightmares, so um, chose to strongly hint that rather than say it outright, which I genuinely really like, actually. It gives the finale a different feel, which is pretty cool. So let's have another rummage back and see what other bits of time we can find. So we'll go back to the very beginning and go back into the cave instead of trying to find the ranch in the Ice Age. You walk into the interior of the strange cavern, then wait while your eyes become accustomed to the dim amber light. Gradually you can make out the two tunnels. One curves downward to the right, the other leads upward to the left. It occurs to you that the one leading down may go to the past and the one leading up may go to the future. But that doesn't matter because it's a left-right decision. In fact, we can go left-right or we can walk outside the cave. So we are going to take the left-hand path. The tunnel to the left winds around like a spiral, passing several more tunnels. You turn down one of them, then climb steeply. In a few moments, you climb through a hole and emerge in a desert. The weather is extremely hot, certainly over 100 degrees but the sun is just about to set, so it should be getting colder. So for my metric listeners, uh, 100 degrees Fahrenheit is nearly 38 degrees Celsius. So yeah, very, very hot. In the distance is a range of mountains which look extremely high, yet a bare of snow. You have no idea where you are in the past, the future or the present. Then you see something that fascinates and disturbs you. The sand seems to be fused into yellowish glass as if heated in a furnace. As you examine the sand more closely, you feel the air getting even hotter. Suddenly, you realise that the sun is not setting, but rising. The noontime temperature must be more than life can stand. As the sun rises higher, you feel a blistering wave of heat. The light is almost blinding. Could it be that you are witnessing the end of the world? Oh, this is awesome. This is awesome. I love the detail that you're clearly in the same geographical location uh, with the mountains. And, oh, this is all kinds of intriguing. You dive down into the tunnel, hoping that you can make it back to an earlier time. Gratefully, you feel cool, damp air coming up from the cave. You are curious to try the next tunnel you come to. 
thinking that it may show the state of the world just before it began to burn up from the intensifying heat of the dying sun, or that it might show what happened afterwards. I mean, I'm guessing not a lot, but you suspect that a tunnel further on might be more likely to lead back to your own time. I am going to take that first tunnel. You take the first tunnel and follow it on and on until you begin to wonder whether you're going around in circles. What can this mean? Perhaps time itself is slowing. You are nearing the point of exhaustion and begin to feel very cold. You see an opening up ahead and stars shining. You step outside on barren ground. It is bitter cold. Even though there is no wind, you know you will freeze if you stay more than a few minutes. Maybe not even that long, for the air seems very thin, as if you were on top of a high mountain. You find yourself gasping for breath. You look up at the clear, cold night sky, studded with thousands of stars. Among the stars, you notice a disc the size of the sun that gives off a dim red light like a dying ember. The end. Ah, that is an awesome ending. This is better put together than I was expecting. For what is a kind of go-anywhere-do-anything premise, there's lots of bits in here that link to previous sections in really interesting ways. There has been some really good thought put into this. I can see why books like this were a hit, because I am having a fantastic time with it. I mean, I love Dying Earth stories. I really do. So getting that referenced in a choose-your-own-adventure book, the first proper choose-your-own-adventure book, that is awesome. Still, let's try a different tunnel. Also, I really like that you can imagine, if you want, just going back to the tunnel whenever you get to an ending. You don't have to imagine that it was absolutely the end. You could imagine that you ran away from the weird ant crocodiles. You can imagine that you managed to get back from the dying earth to the tunnel. That's a really cool feature. I don't think it's necessarily intentional, but the way it's been structured just allows for that. And it makes continuing feel a lot less problematic than it sometimes does. After following the passageway for a considerable distance, you enter a very large tunnel that seems as likely as any to lead back to your own time. You continue along and soon notice the floor of the tunnel is becoming sandier. Perhaps you are coming to a beach? Then the sand gives way under your feet. You slide through sand and rising dust. You cannot stop yourself, it is too steep. And then there is nothing under your feet. And a moment later you land in deep water. You swim to the surface and catch your breath. You are in an underwater grotto which seems completely sealed off except for a portion of its roof that is open to the blue sky. You swim to a large smooth rock sloping into the water. The sand is white and the water transparent. The rocks are made of crystalline material of the most delicate shades of blue. For a moment you are overwhelmed by the beauty of the scene but soon you begin to wonder whether you can escape from it. There is no way of climbing out through the opening in the roof. You dive down in hopes of finding an underwater passage that might lead to freedom and you find one. But could you swim through it before running out of air? Also a classic 
classic encounter for adventures. Yeah, always like that. You want to try and swim through the underwater tunnel? Of course I do. You take a deep breath, dive down and swim through the tunnel. There is a light ahead. In a moment you surface in a beautiful lagoon. Thatched cottages are nestled among the palm trees that rim the white sand beach. A warm, soft breeze blows the scent of jasmine and the sound of strange melodies from sonorous drums. Looking out to the inlet from the sea, you can see a fleet of outrigger skiffs with multicoloured sails running into the lagoons before the wind, their owners leaning against the booms to hold the sails out. You walk to the village. Several handsome brown-skinned people see you. Some of them run away, but others walk towards you with hands held up in salute. Two children, holding garlands of flowers, run up to you. Someone calls Aloha. So we are in Hawaii. Never been to Hawaii? Probably never will go to Hawaii. Nice to visit it in an adventure game book. Soon you are sitting in front of a huge beach fire, cooking crabs and eating buana cakes. Having never had a visitor before, your hosts are happy to see you. They welcome you into their society. And I will presumably repay them by giving them all manner of diseases. Gradually, you learn their language. The boys tell you they are your brothers, the girls that they are your sisters. You enjoy life in this new paradise, but you still wonder whether there might be a way to get back to the cave of time. Your new friends are unable to help. Perhaps if you journeyed inland, you could find someone who could. Your friends warn you against trying, however. They tell you that they, you will find only terrible jungles and rivers filled with crocodiles. Though there is an image of the people. They all look very friendly and not especially racistly depicted, I guess, either. Um, one of those where I'm looking at it and thinking, could have been a lot worse which is the best you can really hope for um, in 1979. So uh, I will journey inland to see if I can find a new exit. You hug your friends goodbye and climb the ridge bordering the jungle. You soon find an animal trail leading through the dense undergrowth into a tropical rainforest. The green canopy of the treetops is far overhead and only an occasional dapple of sunlight reaches the spongy dark ground. You walk on and on, hoping to reach the mountains where you might find another entrance to the cave of time. Night falls and you make yourself a crude bed. Your mattress is the mossy floor of the forest. You spread out fern leaves for a sheet. Early the next morning, as the birds are beginning their morning songs, you are awakened by the boa constrictor wrapped around your neck. The end. And there is a picture of the child being throttled by a boa constrictor. And it's pretty good, actually. It still feels a little bit stiff and static, but it's better than some of the other human figures what we've seen. Uh, yeah, I think that will probably do it for this journey into the caves of time. I had a surprisingly nice time with it. Um, looking forward to delving into it and reading some more of the secrets, finding more of those endings. It kind of reveals something immediately to me that if you're going to do a choose your own adventure book, there is a lot of mileage in having a whole bunch of endings. 
that works really well as a premise. I don't think it's the only premise. I think you can do a choose your own adventure book that's expansive in terms of the narrative. But just doing a whole bunch of different endings to find just seems to work really, really well. Uh, I'm sure I'll have some more thoughts once I've read it in its entirety. I'll be back for you in just a few seconds with some closing remarks. Tatty bye. It's always interesting looking back at things which became an honest-to-goodness phenomenon, doubly so in this case where you've got the phenomenon emerging on both sides of the Atlantic in slightly different ways. I find it's always especially interesting to look at these cultural artefacts and try and decide whether they are actually any good or not. Are they just some flash in the pan or are they lightning in a bottle? Were they successful because they were great, like Lord of the Rings or Friends, or were they a success because they tapped into some kind of cultural zeitgeist like Twilight or the Books of Dan Brown? In the case of Choose Your Own Adventure and indeed of Fighting Fantasy, you have the question of what part the central gimmick played in the success of the franchise. Was the gimmick of adventure game books so good that the quality of the writing was almost irrelevant? In the case of Fighting Fantasy, you have an incredibly strong run of books, with five of the first ten being stone-cold classics, and a further three being very good indeed, which leaves only two missteps. You've got both a gimmick and some great writing to go at right from the start. It's telling that many pretenders to the Fighting Fantasy crown came along, but very few managed to carve out a niche that was anything like as successful, and I think often that's because the quality simply wasn't there. It nonetheless remains true that the gimmick was great, and plenty of people made money producing their own versions of the same basic premise. I had in my head the vague notion that the gimmick of gamebooks was so good that whoever was first to market would probably succeed regardless of quality. I was aware that there had been experimental books that had explored branching narratives before either Fighting Fantasy or Choose Your Own Adventure, I had a vague theory that it was the advent of video games that provided the preconditions for gamebooks to succeed, since video games showed that entertainment could be interactive in fundamentally new ways. Packard's limited success in 1976, when his first book came out, can be contrasted with Choose Your Own Adventure's enormous success in a post-Atari 2600 world. Even though Fighting Fantasy grew out of tabletop role-playing games in a fairly organic way, I think it may have needed the cultural context of video games to become a viable mass-market product. This is only a theory, and I'd love to have the time to research it and put it to the test, but in all honesty, it would probably take years. I mentioned at the start that I had a slightly negative view of Choose Your Own Adventure as a child, and I'd be lying if I said I didn't see this episode as a chance to explore whether I could make a case that the first Choose Your Own Adventure book was a bad game book that found an audience because the world was primed for game books to become a big deal. The problem is that I don't actually think The Caves of Time is a bad game book. It's actually a lot of fun, and I enjoyed the time I spent combing through looking for all the different endings. I was going to go through it with a fine-tooth comb anyway, because that is my whole deal, but Happily, it never felt like a chore. There's a couple of reasons why I think this works so well, and the simplest is that Packard has a very clear idea what kind of book he's writing. 
It's a book with 40 different endings, and everything he does is in service to that goal of providing as many different endings as he can squeeze into 115 short pages. That means short sections and lots of choices. Compared to other books we've covered in a similar style, there are simply more choices and more final outcomes. It really focuses on the interactive element, and I think that is very much a strength. If we look at some of the other books in a similar genre that I've covered, such as the Doctor Who books, the two Transformers books, and the Endless Quest books, one thing that tended to be a criticism is that they didn't feel as interactive as I might have wanted. Some of them felt more like a novel that is sometimes interrupted by choices, and that's absolutely not the case here. Caves of Time gives you choices on most pages and keeps the writing really brief so as to fit in all of those different options. Brevity is incredibly important in gamebook design. It's something that I personally struggle with. I always want to provide more detail in my section descriptions to bring the locations to life. But there is an art, a real art, to creating prose which is brief and functional but also vivid enough to convey emotion. Ian Livingstone, on a good day, is the absolute master of this. And I think Edward Packard definitely has the same skill. His sections are short, sometimes dealing with great swathes of time in just a few sentences, but they have an emotional content which kept me engaged throughout my reading of the book. The second element that works well here is how varied the different endings are. The individual stories are necessarily extremely short. You simply pop into the cave and pop out again somewhere in time and space, neither make your home there, get murdered, or make your way back. But there's a lot of variety within these broader outcomes. You can end up being eaten by the Loch Ness Monster, becoming a sailor and travelling the world, making friends with Abraham Lincoln, expiring at the end of the sun's life, or being suffocated in the Earth's primordial past when the atmosphere doesn't yet have any oxygen. My personal favourite is the one where you become a Quaker printer in 18th century Philadelphia. I didn't really expect that to be an option when I started reading. There's a lovely mix of the sort of things you might expect, such as being eaten by dinosaurs, and things that feel more surprising, like ending up as slave labour building the Great Wall of China. And one thing that the author does is to vary the amount of time which passes in the sections, and that's a smart move. Even though describing the passage of years in a couple of sentences takes up the same amount of space as the passage of a few minutes, it gives some of the narratives more of an epic feel, and that counterbalances the fact that the whole adventure has in fact taken place in a couple of hundred words. And with all this imagination on display, it makes restarting the book feel very appealing. There's just lots to discover on each playthrough. I found it very engaging, and I think it's doing something interesting with the gamebook format. I think the central conceit to the Caves of Time allows for a very expansive adventure, even if that's pushing at the limits of what the word count can contain. And I would much rather read something where it seems as though the ideas are struggling to be contained than something where the ideas are being spread too thin, even if they've been spread too thin using evocative prose. One thing I find myself wondering is whether books in the Choose Your Own Adventure series that have a more grounded setting will be able to sustain that same sense of excitement and wonder. Packard has stated that he kept the series fresh by jumping around from genre to genre, 
which I think is a great idea, but it does seem like the magical stories are going to be a natural fit with the ultra-compressed storytelling approach. I'll definitely pick up some of the later books at some point, um, focusing on ones with less elaborate settings to see if they also work. The areas vary as well in terms of how much detail there is. Again, I think this is very well judged. I think most kids would, incorrectly, prefer to spend time hanging out with knights and kings than wandering through a dying earth, so it makes sense to have the knights and kings take up more space. The section in medieval Europe also shows a healthy degree of scepticism towards the idea of kings, which is a good lesson to be teaching children. Structurally, the book is fairly simple, but there is still enough complexity to make hunting down the last few endings feel like a challenge. It's not simply a corridor with a set of rooms on either side containing different endings. There's branches that you have to try quite hard to seek out. There's also no obvious correct path, which I think is another really important feature of this kind of book. There's a mixture of endings where you get home, where you wind up stuck in another time, or where you perish in some gently hilarious fashion. It doesn't have that traditional quest structure. It's all much more open-ended. And the vibe is very much, just go and have some adventures and see if you like it. That is something I think is a great bit of design. If you have a mission, that pushes you towards a gamebook design that leans closer towards the game side of the gamebook spectrum, and I think that's a lot harder to do in a compact space. This is a much better approach, not least because it encourages replaying the book even after you've found an ending you like. When you give the reader a mission, there often isn't the same impetus to go back once you've come to an ending that feels like a win. If I beat a fighting fantasy book early, which to be fair basically never happens, then I'm not all that enthused about going back to explore all the options. But here, exploring all the options is the whole point. And that's one reason why with my books, I try and make it so that you can get to the end without too much difficulty, but there's a whole bunch of things for you to find on subsequent playthroughs if you want to try and get to the best ending. I don't want to make my books too hard, but at the same time, I want to give value for money, and that means incentivizing people going back. There's lots of choices in this one, and the options presented are nicely judged, and they feel impactful. Most of the choices are binary, but there's a few more varied options as well. There's also a fair number of times when it's just about choosing which tunnel to go down, but there's sometimes a contextual hint or two, and even if there isn't, you know that each tunnel leads to a different time and place, so you have a good idea of the sort of thing you're choosing between, which makes it feel less like a straight either-or decision in a dungeon setting, for example, where you've got no idea what's going to be at the end of either of the two passages. Once you get to a time zone, all of your decisions feel as though they will have ramifications, sometimes expected, sometimes unexpected, and most of them feel like reasonable options. There's even an actual NPC who you can engage with in four different ways. And there's a couple of places where there's three paths to follow. So there is a kind of range of choices as well. So it is about more than the gimmick. It's a gimmick that has a history that predates Edward Packard and seems to have been reinvented several times before hitting the big time in the 1980s. I still think game books were an idea whose time had come. But for something to really take off, there needs to be something in there beyond the central conceit. 
It's like Where's Wally? The premise of finding hidden things in a picture book is one thing, but the pictures also need to be things you want to look at for it to have any longevity. And I remember looking at Where's Wally a whole bunch. Which does bring us neatly to the art, which is curious. There's some elements I like, and I think the guy clearly has a good grasp of the fundamentals, but it is very cartoony and done in a style that hasn't dated especially well. It feels like it might be more at home in the funny pages of a newspaper than in an actual book. A lot of the images feel as though they ought to have some kind of weak joke captioned with them. The illustrator Paul Granger had an interesting career. He did an edition of Wizard of Oz where the art seems more stylized and to me more appealing than his work here. He did several choose-your-own-adventure books and various other bits of work, including work for Reader's Digest. He died in 2012. Edward Packard is still with us, which is nice, although he is in his 90s. One thing the art does well is add to the story. There's some illustrations which provide additional context to the action. The illustration of the weird space monster is a good example. It provides a look at something that wasn't really described in the text and gives you the strong impression that you're going to get eaten by it. And I love it when the art and the text work together in this way. In summary, Choose Your Own Adventure Book 1 Caves of Time was annoyingly good. I still think Fighting Fantasy was better, but equally I'm glad that the series exists as an alternative approach to interactive fiction. I think it's telling that most of the really big criticisms of books in the same style that we've covered before don't apply here. There's just lots of choices, and I didn't get that irritating feeling of being railroaded by an author who wanted to tell one particular story and was irked by having to provide other options. I'll certainly be covering another Choose Your Own Adventure book at some point, just to see if this success was a one-off. That's all for this episode. There's just time to thank another new patron who came in as I was putting the finishing touches to my script. Kevin Atkins, thank you very much for your support. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next fighting fantasy book, which is Legend of the Shadow Warriors, another one where I have absolutely no frame of reference. I hope you will join me then. You can contact me in the meantime by email at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com, or by following me on Blue Sky at hjdoom. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.